if uh, being a Christian was easy, everyone would be doing it, and following God is not always easy. I appreciate that testimony, and um, you know, obedience to God is something He has called us to do, and um, sometimes we can't see our way through things. It, it gets to be clouded, we get emotions, we get feelings, we get all sorts of things, uh, but God is faithful. We are in 1 John 4, we're going to be reading... Um, 12 through the end of the chapter. And you ever notice when you sit and talk with somebody, you sort of know what's most important in their life, right? Just by the conversation, the things they talk about. If you sit and talk with somebody and, and all they ever talk about is hunting, you know hunting is very high on their, on their life list. Or if it's about cars or if it's about cooking or about traveling, if it's something that consumes them where they're talking about it all the time, you know that it's very important to them. Well, John seems to have this thing that keeps reoccurring in his letter. It's this thing called love, the agape love. And I was thinking this last week as I've been just praying through this and looking, and because a lot of it just seems to reiterate itself over and over and over again. And, and it's like, you know, it's interesting, and why is this? And it really came to me this week that love is really the evidence in our lives of Christ living in us. It's really the foundation of, of our Christian walk. And so we want to talk about seeing God. And so we know that the Bible says that no one has seen God at any time. God is a spirit. We cannot see him. We see some Old Testament metaphors where they'll talk about his hinder side or the hand of God. Um, but we know that God is spirit and nobody has seen him. But Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, does that mean that the Father looked like the Son? That's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the characteristics of God were seen in the Son. And so from, not that we'd ever compare ourselves to Jesus, but in our lives, I want to ask you, are people seeing the characteristics of God in your life? And in that little type of a window, if we think about it, people can get a glimpse of who God is. That's the importance of our walk. It's the importance of the things that we do. It's the importance of the things we don't do. And so this love, if we can get our, our minds wrapped around this, and I would challenge each of you to really... <coughs> Do a deep study. I know we've been in 1 John, which seems like a long time, but if you can really get this grasp of what agape love is, this unconditional love, this love that is given, expecting nothing in return. It's the love that, that only God can give us. All the other loves, the, the physical love, the brotherly love, the, the family love, those things are all part of this world. We can choose to generate those things up to a higher level, we can choose to neglect those things in our life. But this agape love can only be given to those that have a relationship with Christ. And this is what John is talking. And so he tells us this, that if we love one another, God abides in us. And again, through the Gospels, it talks a lot about that. John, especially the Gospel of John, talks about that, that we can abide in him and him in us. He prays to the Father, Father, may, may they abide in us as, as I abide in you and as you abide in me. He, he wants us to be this flowing conduit of God's love and God's work in our life. And it's really the greatest evidence, I believe, of God 
living inside of a person. The evidence of the Holy Spirit. Galatians would call it a fruit of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in a moment. And so, do you have this evidence of God's love, this agape love in your life? So that's an unconditional love. And I want to emphasize this because we put conditions on a lot of things. I'll do this if you do that. I'll behave this way if you behave that way. And those are all conditional things. I'll give you this if you give me that. But agape love is nothing like that. And so I want you to really think about that as we talk about this. But when we think about the power of God in a person's life, we can think about a lot of different things. We can think about that the evidence of God is, is by power in our life. The spoken word. You know, we look at God, we say God created all things with a, with a breath, with a word. Sometimes we think in our lives, well, to, to really show people that God is, is alive and, and in me, the evidence of God in my life is power. He's going to give me his power to accomplish these things. He's going to give me this, this power to do certain things and to overcome certain things. And that's certainly a part of our Christian walk. Some people think it's popularity. Oh man, look at how that church is growing. Look at all the, the people that are following. He's got this many followers on, uh, on Twitter or on Facebook. And oh man, he's popular. He must have the Spirit of God in him. Sometimes we think it's about passionate feelings. I always think feelings are, are an interesting thing because God can really stir them. He stirs them through music. He stirs them through his word. He stirs them. I, For me, sometimes just being out in nature and, and the beauty of God's creation. I mean, he stirs these things. But sometimes we think because we're so passionate about something or a cause or because we have these feelings that overwhelm us, that maybe that's the evidence of God. And again, I think that that can be a, a part of it. But I want to say that I really believe that the greatest evidence in the believer's life is the love that we show for one another. And so John talks about this, especially with the brethren, especially with, with fellow believers. Because there's sometimes where Jesus, in, in the Gospels as we read of his life, there were sometimes that he, he seemed weak and lacking in power. But Jesus always was consumed with love. And we know that Jesus wasn't weak or lacking, but it appeared that way sometimes. But he always had... This, this persona of love. He was always full of love in everything and everyone that he ever dealt with. Sometimes Jesus wasn't popular at all. As was shared up here, sometimes when we choose to stand on Christ's principles, we're not going to be popular. Amen. It says the world's going to hate us, but don't feel bad because they hated him also. So we make stands for the Bible. We make stands of, of right and wrong. There is... That, that black and white. There are those convictions in our life that we need to walk by. So popularity isn't an evidence of, of necessarily God in our life. Sometimes Jesus didn't even inspire passionate feelings in people. Sometimes he did. He had great joy for some, great hatred with others. But it's not just about feelings because feelings can lead us astray. Feelings are are guided in our life by, by many certain things. But love was the constant in Jesus' life. With whoever he came in contact with, whoever he talked to, and it's really the greatest evidence, not only in his life, of the Father's work, but I would say in our life. He has given us an example that we should follow in his steps. And so if we love one another, then the love of God becomes mature in our life. 
And we need to think about that. Are we growing mature in our walk with Christ? Are we growing mature in our love of God? And so, starting verse 12, No one has seen God at any time, for if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. And that word perfected really means maturing in us. It's growing in us. It's becoming more Christ-like. This is, excuse me, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and him in God. So Jesus, or John, excuse me, said in, in the Gospel of John 15.4, he said, Abide in me and I in you. It's a great chapter to read about abiding in God, living in God, and God living in us. And what does that show the world? And he says a couple verses later in verse 7, it says, If you abide in me, my word abides in you. And so we also know that the word of God is in us, and so we know that Jesus is abiding in us, his spirit is abiding in us by the word of God. We believe it. We live it. We profess it. Now, there's a lot of people that can say that they believe it, but they're not living it. They can profess it, but they're not doing it. God tells us to live the word. We know what the word says. The word is, is, makes us wise for salvation. The word is what gives us counsel to, to heal marriages and to uh, restore relationships. The word of God gives us the answer to deal with, with every situation that we can come into. And it's really time for the Christian to begin to, to walk in this love as a foundation of what God has called us to do. John declares really three essential things that he tells us about salvation in both his gospel and in these epistles. And one is that the Father sent the Son, and we spent a lot of time on that last week. He sent, not that we deserve, not that we even sought after it, he sent while we were sinners, while we were enemies against him, while we were walking contrary to the world, to the to the word of God, he sent his son. That was his love. He didn't look down and say, oh, you know what? They're showing me a little promise down there. I'm going to send my son. No. Why our hearts were black, he sent his son. And he says, my son, and we begin the Trinity. We believe one God and three people, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But he says, salvation comes through Jesus. He is the one way. The world today says there's many paths that lead to Jesus. There's many religions that, are, or that lead to salvation or lead to heaven or nirvana or whatever they want to call it. But the Bible says there is one way and one name, and that's Jesus Christ. And we stand on that. When we stand on that, the world doesn't like it because the world wants to be collected. The world wants uh, you know, everybody to feel like they're doing good. And thirdly, John tells us this, that knowing and understanding Jesus is really the, the foundation in our lives for abiding in him. So John really says without knowing Jesus, personally we cannot do that, without even knowing about him and, and what he desires of us and what he has done for us, the sacrifice that has been made for us. And when we really think about love, even towards one another, this agape love, it needs to hinge back on the love that we have experienced from God. And so Marshall, 
I, I always like just reading different commentaries, but Marshall says this, he says, to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God is not simply to make a statement about his metaphysical statement or status, but to express obedient trust in the one who obtained such a status. So this obedient trust, the walk that we have, you know, in, in, the, in the scriptures it tells us, with our mouths we make great professions. But he says our heart is far from him. Jesus desires to have our heart right by him. Boy says this, to believe that Christ, to believe in Christ and to love the brethren are not merely conditions which we may um, dwell in God. So sometimes we think, well, if I, in order to dwell in God more, to, to abide in him more, I need to love the brethren more. Boy says that's not the case, but rather are evidences of the fact that God has already taken possession of us. It says that he has taken possession of us and he has given us this power and this, this ability to love the brethren and to love others. Again, sometimes we get it backwards. We think we generate these things in our life and, and therefore we draw closer to God or, or we make these things happen in our life and therefore uh, we're, we're a better Christian. We got it backwards because what we need to understand is that if we're a believer, God has taken possession of us. His spirit indwells in us. And because of that fact, we have the power and we have the ability to live out what his word has told us. Verse 16 goes on to tell us this. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So he's saying this love is a foundation, is, is the rope that ties us all together with him. His spirit has come into us, not to proclaim a religion, not to, to live in a legality of things, but to live and to walk in a relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul says this in Romans 8. He says, nothing can separate me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that was in Jesus Christ. Amen. He knows that. So he's not saying he's generating that or, or holding on to that because, you know, if hanging on to God's love was my responsibility, if hanging on to God's love was, was my work, I'd be letting go of it all the time. I don't have that strength or that power, but God is in me. And he says, he says nothing can separate me from that. Not situations, not troubles, not problems. Even when I turn my back, the Bible says, when I'm not faithful, it says God still remains faithful. I love Spurgeon. I read a lot of Spurgeon, but he says this, to feel God's love is very precious. Some of our testimonies today have been about knowing God's love in our life. Some of you have gone through difficult times. You know what it is to feel God's love in your life. Spurgeon says, to feel God's love is very precious, but to believe it when you do not feel it is noblest. To believe it when you do not feel it. See, our feelings sometimes can go astray. Some of us have been there, right? Where, God, where are you? I, I just don't feel you're in my life. I don't think you're hearing my prayers. But the scriptures say when we are faithless, he remains faithful. His love is always there. I remember counseling an old couple and I was talking to the the wife, and we, we talk about 
sharing words of affirmation, I think they're good. You know, the words of telling one another that you love each other. And sometimes we don't do that quite the way that we do. But I remember that wife saying, I know regardless of what he says, he loves me. See, we can know that God loves us. Even when we don't feel it. Even when uh, we're not experiencing it. I, I know one of our songs uh, we were singing, I can't remember this, but, you know, I'll praise you like when things are going great. But what about when we're in the valleys? When God seems so far away. If we believe in the scriptures and we believe in God, we still know that he is there. And so I tell people, no matter what dark tunnel you're in, you know that there's a light at the end of it if God is with you. When you're facing that mountain and you say, you know, how am I going to do this? You know that God is going to be with you every step of the way. We don't always feel that way, but we know it because we believe in the promises of God's scripture. 17 and 18. The consummation of love. What, What does this all look like? Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. And that's sort of an amazing scripture, isn't it? As he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. I talked to a lot of Christians over the years, and they always worry about their life. They, they worry, you know, well, when I get to heaven, you know, and some of them aren't living for God. And so when I say Christians, there, there's people that profess Christianity. We're not the judge of that. But it says that this perfect love casts out fear. We know that if we are God's, that he is going to take care of us. He's going to see us through whatever it is that, that we are going through, whatever trial we are going Though, you know, what did Job say? Though they slay me, still will I praise him. Can we do that in our life? When we're going through difficult times, you know, the, the, the transition that we're making in our life is, is a difficult one. It's been one of questions and, and searching and, and prayer and, and scripture and, and waiting upon the Lord. One of the things that, that I think I've learned more, and, and you know, maybe Julie also, but is, is watching God work. And sometimes when I say, where are you, God? How come you're not doing How come you're not revealing How come you're not... It's just like sit back and watch the flower petals open. Because God has a way of doing these things. And so fear is sort of like that word love. Fear has different meanings. Sometimes fear can mean respect. But this fear is that we don't need to tremble wondering what it's going to be like when we stand before God. If we are abiding in him, if we are living in him, if we are his. He has us. Some people fear the judgment day. Dreading his judgment either now or or maybe even in the future. We fear standing before God and and what God has for us. But we know that all the judgment that we have ever deserved, all the, the judgment that is due us, either past, present, or future, was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that Christ paid it all? 
Now that doesn't give us a license to continue to sin in our life. We know that in our nature, flesh battles against spirit. We know that in our nature we're going to have these conflicts. We know that we're going to sin. But what do you do with that sin in your life? Do you repent of that? Do you bring it to the cross? Do you give it to Jesus? He paid for it. Jesus, knowing all things beginning to end, knows that. We can stand confidently in that. We love him, verse 19, because he first loved us. Don't ever think that that the things that we generate in our life are are self-initiated. Sometimes people say, well, you know, uh, as soon as I sow some wild oats, then I'm going to come to Jesus. We don't initiate that. Christ initiates that in our life. Everything that we do that is, is, is God-derived comes from him initiating these things in our life. We have a responsibility. When God calls, we have a responsibility to pick up the phone. Right? We have those choices. I'm not saying we don't have free will in these things, but to, to boldly state that, you know, well, I'll just approach God on my own terms and in my own way. And pretty soon we're redefining salvation the way that we want it to be. We want to redefine our life and say, you know, God, this is the direction I'm going. I'd love to have you come with me. Instead of saying, where are you going, God? And can I come aboard? Because following him is the most important thing we can do. Spurgeon said this, every man that was ever saved had to come to God, not as a lover of God, but as a sinner. You know, we teach this wrong in Sunday school sometimes. We'll, we'll, we'll tell the little kids sometimes, oh, you just need to love Jesus and, and you'll be a Christian. It's good to teach that we need to love Jesus. We do need to love Jesus. But we come to God by grace, through faith, right? Amen. We come as sinners. We come dark. We come not even really realizing, you know, I mean, I, I've been a Christian a long time and, and God is still unfolding these things in my life that is like, oh man, I, I can't believe it. But we, we think that we can come to him just because we love him. No, we come to him as a sinner. We come to him not, not even really realizing all that he can offer us. Spurgeon goes on and says, and then believe in God's love to me as a sinner. I can't love God unless he first loves us. What does it say? We love him because he first loved us. Spurgeon had another one, and, and this, this always, I think, sometimes ruffles conservatives, but I, I, I like, again, the way Spurgeon writes sometimes. Jesus loved you when you lived carelessly, when you neglected his word, when the knee was unbent in prayer. Ah, he loved some of you when you were in the dancing saloon. When you were in the playhouse, a even when you were in the brothel, he loved you when you were at hell's gate and drank damnation at every drought. He loved you when you could not have been worse or further from him than you were. Marvelous, O Christ, is thy strange love. We don't like to think of ourselves there, do we? We we got a little bit of a you know pharisaical thread in, in a lot of us, right? I mean, we think like we're a little bit better and like we're accomplishing these things that, that you know, oh, i got to clean up my act and uh, then I'll come to the Lord. Again, as I shared last week when he hung upon that cross, he was looking down at, at darkness. 
He was looking down at you and me. He was looking at our hearts. Ah, there's something redeemable in in me that that he must have liked to call me to himself. No, there was not. I had nothing redeemable in myself. And apart from him, I still don't have anything redeemable in myself. That's a humbling thought when we really get there. And it's that basis, again, of this agape love. Because if I think I deserve something, then I think I expect something. So, oh... I'm such a good person because I'm showing you love. You should show me love. No. When I look and say, you know what? I was an enemy of the cross of Christ. Jesus gave his life for me. How should I respond to others? Like we shared last year, well, but that person offended me. Really? Jesus died for me. Am I going to let a word of offense, am I going to let a little action take those things away? Our love for God is always a response to his love for us. He initiates it. We respond. The foundation that we have. Spurgeon goes on to say this. Now just forget your own love to him and think of his great love to you. Then immediately your love will come to something more like that which you would desire it to be. I think as Christians we... we we have this in us, and I have this in us. It's like, I want to love the Lord more. I want to be where he wants me to be. I want to be doing what he wants me to do. How can I love the God more? God more? And I, you, know, you try to formulate these plans of action in your, in your mind. How can I do this more? And, and I like Spurgeon's point here, because what Spurgeon says is, listen, instead of focusing on what I can do to love God more, what I need to do is sit down and focus on what God has done for me. And when I realize what he has done for me, I can't help but love him more. It's a response again to his love. He's loving me, and I'm just responded. I'm overwhelmed. Have you ever had that happen in your life, maybe with another Christian or another person, where just some unmerited thing just poured out on you, and it's like, man, I didn't deserve this. I didn't ask for this. Man, what a blessing this has been. And you can't help but be thankful and overjoyed at the graciousness. God has told us that. I want to just share a couple of scriptures and, and just because it, it so goes with all this. 1 Corinthians 13, we've been talking about love for a long time. We haven't read this. 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, you should really read through it yourself and, and you could just feed on this for a long time. But it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. It does not speak its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
love never fails. And as you read through that, you say, well, man, there's quite a list. Prophesy, enough faith to move mountains, spiritual giant. But he says, without love, that's Paul, he says, it's nothing. You're an out-of-tune instrument in God's orchestra. See, people can be like a, a spiritual dwarf in their life without love. I mean, they can be good prayers. They can be, uh, in, in all the Bible studies that a, that a church may offer, they may never miss a Sunday service, and they attend Sunday school. And I mean, they, they, they can attend every church function. Maybe they even demonstrate the, the gifts of the Spirit, as 1 Corinthians might say. Yet in all in all, they're, they're sort of like Cain. You know the story of Cain and Abel, right? He offered the fruits of his hands. God says, I want the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? And that's in Galatians. You know, the scripture I'll share with you here. Just a few verses, 5, 22 on. But this is the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, it's It's singular. A lot of time people talk about fruits of the Spirit, like we can divide all these out. Well, I got five of the seven fruits. I'm pretty good. No, this is a fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit it talks about. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. Very first one. And I always believe that God places things in an order in the Scripture. Not that necessarily one is, is supersedes the other, but I think that God is a God of organization, and I, I just think that he places things in, in an order. But the fruit of the Spirit is, first, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Do you have those things in your life? Are you walking in those things in your life? And those who are Christ, it says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, so let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Are you like Cain? Do you offer God the fruits of, of your, your hands or are you offering Him the fruits of the Spirit in your life? John says this, if someone says, I love God and I Hate my brother, he says, you're a liar. You're a liar, and the truth is not in you. What do you do with that scripture? That's not me saying that, that's what the Bible tells us. He is a liar. Jesus said the world is going to measure our position in Christ by the love that we show for one another, by, by the grace that we extend, by the mercy that is given. Just good things for grace and mercy is is grace is, is we're receiving something we don't deserve. Salvation. We don't deserve it. God gives it to us. Mercy is, is sort of the opposite of that coin. It's not receiving something that we do deserve. Okay? So we deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. And we don't have that. I'm speeding. The officer pulls me over. Used to have this problem quite a bit, by the way. <laughs> and they give me a warning. Thank you for your mercy officer God could strike us dead every day for some of the thoughts we have for the attitudes we carry for the things we do but his mercy it is wonderful it's a wonderful thing 
But the world's going to measure us in our position in Christ by the love that we have for one another, how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, the attitudes that we have for one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's an agape love. An agape love. I love you and I don't expect anything in return. You can try to push me away. You can call me names. You can whatever. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to love you. That's a disciple of Christ. That's why in Matthew it says, if you come to the altar and they remember that somebody has something against you, go and make it good. And then come give your gifts to God. God is saying, I don't want your gifts if you're in wrong standing with somebody else. Because believe it or not, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our talents. He doesn't need these things. He wants them. He wants the the blessing of us to use the gifts that we have. But he doesn't need those. But what God desires most in our life is the fruits of the Spirit. He desires in us to be a magnet that will draw others to Christ. I want to be that reflection. You know, we, we got a full moon now, I think, right? We're in the beginning of the first rut, I think. Is that right, Gary? <laughs> Gary's talking about ruts. The moon has no light of its own. You know that, right? You've all, you've all gone through school. It's just a reflection. And a full moon is a bright thing. I've been out in the woods at night with a full moon, and I mean, it illuminates. That's what God wants for us. We don't generate our own light. We're simply a reflection of God's spirit in us. And I want to be a full moon for Jesus. How about you? Let's pray.